0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Jeff Colgan about his new book, Partial Hegemony Oil Politics and International Order. We also talk to Safa Asaidi about her new article, The Arab Spring Why Do the Uprisings Miss the Monarchies? And finally, we check in with Basel Salouk to talk about Lebanon's ongoing political crisis. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Jeff Colgan of Brown University, author of the new book, Partial Hegemony, Oil Politics and International Order, just published by Oxford University Press. Jeff, hey, thanks for joining us.
1: Mark, thanks so much for having me
0: on. Hey, so tell us about this book and uh, what you are trying to accomplish with it.
1: Yeah, so this book is really about three things. Uh, Very quickly, it is number one, uh, a retelling of a century's worth of oil politics from a new perspective. Uh, Secondly, it's using that history to shape our theories of international relations uh, and especially how to think about uh, how international order is maintained. And third is applying the lessons uh, from those modified theories to other issues, including climate change, where we so desperately need new international rules and institutions. Uh, and so I can go on, but... but um,
0: well, Maybe we can start just with the, with the theory part um, yeah. uh, before we kind of dig into what I think the listeners of this podcast will really want to hear about, which is the OPEC and, and, and oil. But on the theory part, uh, you make a really interesting argument that there's uh, ways of thinking about change uh, beneath the, you know, the grand system level. So walk us through that a little bit. And what does it mean to say that in in the energy sector, at least, you, you actually have real change?
1: Yeah, so I see the 1970s as a crucial decade uh, for oil. Uh, and what's interesting about it is that you've got on one level enormous change and on another level, you've got re- remarkable continuity. And so dividing those two out is really important, right? So on the, on the change side, uh, you've got this huge economic volatility, right? In, in a sense, what the um, 1973 oil crisis or what Americans call the oil crisis uh, was, was a, in, in retrospect, was kind of a dividing line between two eras. Prior to that time, you've got uh, an Anglo American oil cartel run by seven companies known as the Seven Sisters that are able to hold the price of oil remarkably consistent for a very long time. Uh, After 1973 you've got OPEC uh, as sort of the leading player um, that can only dream of having the kind of control over the price of oil that the seven sisters do right because now we live in a world for the last 50 years of remarkable oil volatility right so you've got this very sharp difference in the 70s on the kind of oil production and pricing side but on the other hand um you've got uh right so i I guess i should say the way i I, theorists think about that shift that that shift between Mm -hmm. um in the 1970s was the decline of U.S. hegemony, right? This is all about the U.S. and it was about the fact that, uh, you know, the U.S. was losing its, its leadership role. But that turns out to be not such a great explanation because the economic turmoil uh, of the 1970s hid a remarkable amount of continuity in another sense, right? A real military sense mm-hmm. that the U.S. and the United Kingdom had for a very long time been offering protection to oil producing states, right? And this goes back to the 30s and 40s when it was the British Empire that was ruling the Middle East. Uh, And over time, of course, the the chief protector shifts from Britain to the United States. But these oil for security deals continue Mm -hmm. on. And so the idea that the and and they are sort of most vividly demonstrated in 1990, right, with with the Gulf War in 1991. So at least in a military sense, US hegemony in the Persian Gulf was far from over in the 1970s. If anything, it was, it was continuing to grow. And that from a theoretical perspective suggests: look, you know, our, our IR theories for what happened aren't very good and need to be improved. Right. And so that was part of what the was the driving force behind this book.
0: So, so separating out the economic sector from the security sector, it gives us a more nuanced understanding of what counts as change.
1: That's right, and it also helps us think about this idea of energy security that you kind of constantly hear debated and, and mentioned in uh, in U.S. politics. Like we need to have energy security, and that that means you know uh, tampering down our reliance on Middle East uh, exports uh, or imports from a U.S. perspective. Um, and it turns out that you know, look, we actually need to think about power in very separate ways there is an economic sphere and there's a military sphere and those are quite different things and it's possible for a country to be hegemonic in one of those and not the other Uh, Mm -hmm. and that that turns out to be a much better explanation for thinking about the last centuries worth of global oil politics
0: so opec is a major uh you know a major part of your story and the emergence of it its challenge to the seven sisters and then how it evolves over time Um, and you actually see OPEC itself really changing over time in terms of its significance, its institutionalization. So walk us through a little bit um, in your recounting of of the history of of oil politics, where does OPEC come from and how should we understand it as it emerges in that, uh, you know, in in that time of uh, world history?
1: Great, right. So as you know, uh, OPEC was created in 1960 and Uh, A lot of people think that sort of that period from 1960 to 1973 was kind of a sleepy period uh, for OPEC. But I actually think it was uh, a little bit different from that, that this was the time when OPEC acted as a kind of collective bargaining unit, if you will, um, drawing the the member countries together because they were bargaining with those seven sister companies, right? The Anglo-American companies. And they were trying to get more you know a, a bigger share of the profits and the revenue uh, but also they were trying to get more decision making authority they wanted to be able to control how much oil got pumped from their countries which they couldn't at the time right that, that it was really the, the companies that made the decisions. um and so the fact that they were able to kind of turn the tables on uh on the american and british companies in 73 really attest to the fact that they did figure out some ways to cooperate effectively. Uh, and they sort of backed each other when, for instance, in 72 when Iraq moved to nationalize its oil uh, sector, you know, OPEC passed a resolution saying, look, all of the other uh, members of OPEC, we're gonna, we're gonna support Iraq and not uh, let the oil companies kind of play them off against each other, pumping more oil in one place uh, to make up for losses in Iraq, that kind of thing. So that was a, a period of relatively good cooperation.
0: But there, then, is, there's, one, there's one point thing which was really interesting, which was yeah. that if one country managed to uh, negotiate a better deal, then they all wanted the same deal. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so there was a little bit of rivalry between them. And, and it was Libya in particular that was able to sort of drive the um negotiating advantage. They had some you know, technical advantages just based on their location and the type of oil they had. So they kept getting like a little bit more, you know, better prices and, and higher um, uh, share of profits. And then the rest of OPEC members would say to the oil companies, look, we want the same deal and, and drive that up. Right. So there was a ratcheting effect, uh, which which broke the old kind of 50-50 deals that had been in place uh, up till that point.
0: One thing which was striking to me as someone who works mostly in the Middle East was that this is genuinely, of course, a global story. And Venezuela has a has a quite striking role in those early days.
1: That's right. Uh, So, of course, um, you know, uh, Venezuela, the the two sort of founding fathers of OPEC, uh, one's a Saudi and one's Venezuelan. Right. That they had worked together and they really wanted to see OPEC uh and that you know ironically in some ways their their mental model for what opec could be was actually the texas railroad commission uh and so all it's it's kind of ironic in the sense that today when you see uh, americans complaining about opec and how they're doing this kind of unfair uh uh, cartel behavior uh in fact they were inspired by american activities in the first place Uh, and so um so yeah venezuela plays a, a really significant role um, but having won against the, the American companies in the 70s, OPEC's uh, ability to coordinate afterwards really uh, floundered and has floundered ever since, uh, because they suddenly found themselves kind of in playing a different game. And instead of trying to get a higher share of profits from the, the companies, they were now um, doing what's or or had to do to a certain degree, what the Seven Sisters had been doing before, which is to try to control the supply and demand balance at a global level. Uh, And they found themselves not nearly as good at it, right? Right. And the the, the companies were able to do that and hold the price pretty consistent. Whereas OPEC um, just can't enforce their own agreements amongst themselves. And so they really don't stick to them, Uh, they cheat an incredible rate, uh, 96% of the time, according to the analysis I did. Uh, And that means, you know, you get what we get, which is really high oil price volatility.
0: Before we get into that part of it, uh, one more question about uh, your analysis of the of the earlier period is you place a lot of emphasis on decolonization and how that affected the ability of kind of the external powers to impose costs on, yeah. on the producers. Walk us through that a little bit and how decolonization, nationalization, how does that all play out together?
1: Thanks uh, for, for bringing me back to that because that's exactly right, that, that decolonization was a watershed um. Uh, movement for the for the petro states petrostates uh, in a couple of ways. One is that many of these states, you know, wanted to nationalize their oil sector, and you know, in a formal sense, for some of these places that were colonies, there was no nation to do the nationalizing as long as they were formal co- uh, colonies, right? So Kuwait, for instance, really couldn't do it without permission from legal permission from London, uh, and so there was that kind of barrier. I think even more importantly, though, there was the role that, even though this was kind of an economic arrangement, uh, uh, there was the realization that if uh, the petrostates didn't play ball, according to this kind of, private oil market uh, um, cartel, then there could be real political and even military consequences. And this was vividly demonstrated in Iran, of course, in 1951 to 1953, when uh, Prime Minister Mossadegh uh, tried to nationalize the Iranian oil sector and the CIA and MI6 got together to basically launch a coup against him and it ultimately succeeded, removing him from power and putting the Shah back in charge, who was much friendlier to the Anglo-American companies.
0: sending a powerful um, lesson to any other would-be nationalizers.
1: Exactly. It was not the only time they did this, but it was probably the most striking example. Uh, and so, uh, other would-be nationalizers, exactly right, were were you know given pause, to say the least, to think, well, do we really want to go there? Uh, which is why you know when when Iraq uh, did nationalize in seventy two, uh, the coordination among OPEC members was so important. Um, and so, uh, OPEC thought of itself. Just coming back to that decolonization idea, they thought of themselves, in their words, as an economic sequel to decolonization, right? That yes, we've got political independence, but we don't have economic independence, and so that's what OPEC was was driving that towards, and the success that OPEC had in '73, from their perspective, right? Americans called an oil crisis, but from from uh, the petrostates' perspective, it was a real success. That inspired a lot of non-oil producers in the global south, what we now call the global south, to say, look, we want a whole new international economic order, right? This idea of the neo really came out of OPEC uh, and and the success that they
0: had. So 1973 is the high point for OPEC uh, in in your narrative. So why why did it work? Why were they able to act so effectively in 1973?
1: Yeah, so Largely, they they were driving towards nationalization. Uh, And that I think is, uh, there was a couple of things that that mattered. One was that um, they got, they waited for the right time, uh, that was crucial, because the oil market, the global oil market had Uh, changed considerably. It had had tightened up, right, that there had been enormous demand growth for oil uh, over the previous two decades, where Europe was essentially getting cars, and America's cars were getting bigger. And so the demand on oil was just massive. Uh, And so that meant that instead of a world of abundant oil in the 50s and 60s, suddenly in the early 70s, there wasn't enough. Uh, And that gave the producers of oil kind of much more leverage than they otherwise would have. So that, uh, plus the fact that they had figured out a kind of political uh, mode of protecting each other when one member stuck their neck out to do nationalization. Those I think were sort of the two crucial elements that allowed OPEC to do what it did, which was to turn the the tables on those uh,
0: Anglo-American oil companies. But then coming back to your core argument, that turning the tables turned out to be far less consequential at kind of the military political level than, uh, than it might have appeared. Yeah, well, so consequential might not be the right word, but it, it mattered in different ways. Yeah, it mattered a lot economically,
1: but it's sort of funny that some of the same actors like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia that were leading you know, the charge on an economic level saying, look, we want to change the system they were at the same time, so they were upending the system in one way, but then they were saying, hold on, those oil for security deals we have, we want to keep those, right, so we don't want to, we don't want to mess with that in any way, and so that's where you get, you know, continuity on that political military level.
0: Um, that $10 continuously- dollar recycling and...
1: Yes, exactly, and, and so Saudi Arabia and uh, especially goes out of its way to make sure that the U.S. is happy that there is that petrodollar recycling that the U.S. starts uh, that the Saudis start to buy U.S. weapons uh, on the order of billions and billions to make sure that the U.S. Uh, remains a consistent ally and protector, uh, which which they need ultimately, uh, and that history proves that they need it in, in 1990.
0: So then after 1973, then um, you have uh, this this chapter, which uh, you go into great deep, great detail to show that it's actually not a cartel, or at least not a successful one. So explain that and kind of why they cheat so much and why OPEC goes from successful to unsuccessful in this uh, in, in the economic domain.
1: Right, so uh, so I think about a cartel in two different ways. Right? The, the kind of lay version of the word cartel is just like a group of producers, and OPEC is clearly that. But it is not a cartel in an economic sense, meaning that they are able to coordinate supply production and manage it from a perspective that, that would be different than if there was no OPEC at all. Right, if this was just a group of individual um, uh, petrostates. And so, yes, of course it's true that OPEC has market power in the sense that Saudi Arabia has some market power just by virtue of its mm-hmm. dominant uh, market position. And Saudi Arabia is a member of OPEC, uh, but the institution of OPEC, right? The one that's headquartered in v- uh, Vienna, that one doesn't add anything. It doesn't, it doesn't significantly amplify um, what Saudi Arabia already has in terms of market power. That's that's the argument of the book. Instead, it acts more like um, a press secretary, right? So that we we pay attention to the U.S. presidential press secretary, not because the press secretary has power on her own, but rather she speaks for, or represents somebody who does have power, right? In which in, in the OPEC case is, is Saudi Arabia, right? That that's why they, that it's worth listening to, to what OPEC says, because they're, they're, they're speaking um, Saudi Arabia's message on some level. But, but, you, they, but you argue, though, that it's politically useful to pretend. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it is helpful uh, for a lot of the members of OPEC to uh, pretend that they are part of this kind of significant uh, economic force because, look, Ecuador and Nigeria, even, they don't get a lot of diplomatic attention in the world. And so this is a way of kind of putting them on the world stage that they otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, And so for them, it's kind of a useful fiction to say, yes, this is really powerful uh, actor. And I'm not saying that they're lying necessarily, but they they don't go advertising the fact that it's really not clear that OPEC can move the price very much, except under very unusual market circumstances, when the market is particularly tight, uh, for instance. Uh, So ultimately,
0: it comes down then to whether or not Saudi Arabia is willing and able to manipulate its production. Exactly. Because Saudi Arabia- Make sacrifices, so to speak. (laughs) Saudi
1: Arabia, Kuwait, and maybe the UAE, those are the three countries that actually have some spare capacity that they can turn on and off um, when they want to. Most of the other members of uh, of OPEC are pumping oil as fast as they can because they're desperate for the revenue. And the idea that they are strategically holding back uh, oil that they could be selling at a, a, a market price that's just a fiction that just doesn't add up. Uh, when you look at you know, Iraq or Venezuela or Nigeria, do you really think that they're foregoing sales? Like, I don't think so because they're, these are countries that are stretching to meet their budget on an annual basis. Um, and so I do have a bunch of statistical tests to show that in fact, you know, movements in OPEC quotas really do not correlate well at all with production decisions. Uh, in fact, production decisions seem to Carry on more or less uh, completely independently of whatever uh, talks are being held in Vienna.
0: A 96% defection rate is uh, quite striking.
1: Yeah, I mean, Mark, if your if your students were cheating at 96% rate, you know, the president of your university might give you a call and say, "Look, you're not really doing what you're saying you're doing." Uh, and that's what I'm saying about OPEC is that this isn't really, you know, an actual force uh, economically.
0: So when, you, when we carry this into the current period and we've seen the kind of volatility that we've had, we saw the collapse of oil prices not too long ago, we've seen the rise of U.S. shale production and everything like that. Is this another change in the energy order or is it still within the same post-1973 um, kind of subsystem So I think
1: when we talk about periodization, I think of sort of 1973, right up to about 2015, 2016, as kind of one period. Mm -hmm. And the period we're in now, it's actually a little bit unclear. I start to think of this as kind of like the clean energy transition, uh, which is only slowly starting to happen. Um, But uh, I do think we're starting to move into a a new world in the sense that, um, you know, the, the the long stretch of oil demand expansion where you could sort of, you could bank on oil demand uh, increasing year after year after year, that seems to be coming to a halt. And I don't wanna say, oh no, we're at peak oil because people who have predicted peak oil have been wrong so consistently over the last century. Uh, I don't wanna lump myself into that, um, but you know, I, I think it's clear that there is an effort worldwide to start thinking about a post-carbon, energy system. Uh, and, you know, I that's going to take decades to happen. Uh, and I don't think anybody should fool themselves into thinking that, you know, the US or any other country really is going to get off of oil anytime immediately soon. Uh, but it is, the, you know, starting to look like a new age uh, uh, coming on.
0: Uh, which brings, then, brings us then into like the final section of your book, where you try and extend your arguments into the climate change sector. So maybe yeah. even though that maybe isn't as much about the Middle East, why don't we talk about that a little bit and kind of what are the lessons of the energy sector for this other subsystem?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things that I take away from the oil history. Uh, one, as I said, you know, OPEC doesn't work very well in, uh, in terms of controlling prices because it doesn't have enforcement. It doesn't have sort of teeth within its agreements. And that really makes me think hard about the Paris Agreement, which we are supposedly banking on as, as our uh, great white hope for, for for climate change. That is an agreement that doesn't have enforcement powers, right? It is all about kind of you know peer pressure amongst the countries. And I don't think that's gonna get it done. I think we need something with much greater enforcement. Uh, and I, I think to the extent that that's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, Sort of outside of the the COP process, the Paris Agreement process, but instead it's going to happen in uh, trade agreements and finance. Uh, that seems to be, in my view, more likely to see uh, real climate uh, agreements with teeth to them. Um, the other thing that I would just point out is, you know when OPEC was most effective back in the 60s and early 70s, one thing that it did was encourage experimentation, right? It encouraged its members to try new things out on a almost a a country by country level or even a project by project level where it was asking its members to try to figure out, well, what tax treatments, what contractual arrangements with these Anglo-American companies work best uh, for you? And they shared information and there was that sort of let a thousand flowers bloom, kind of approach. And I think that too might hold lessons for us in terms of climate change, where policy experimentation at the subnational level is valuable. We should be encouraging it. Um, and we should expect to have to put some public dollars into um, making uh, a shift in our global economy in- instead of expecting you know, zero waste and perfect efficiency. No, we're in a time of experimentation and we're, we need to embrace that. So
0: one of the other implications is that OPEC essentially worked when and if Saudi Arabia was willing to take the losses um, in order to keep it working. Um, what's the equivalent, if any, in the climate change sector?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure there is. And I, I think actually even in OPEC's case, one of the lessons from the early 80s was that even when Saudi Arabia was taking enormous pain economically and cutting its, its oil sales uh, tremendously, there got to a point where it couldn't sustain what OPEC was trying to do and eventually said, forget it, we're going to flood the market with, with oil uh, and and we're not taking this much economic pain. So the, the reality is for uh, climate change, you know, uh, uh, global um, greenhouse gases are uh, diffuse. And so they're coming from many, many different sources. And we need to get at least four big players on the same page, uh, or at least uh, moving in the same direction, uh, which are China, the largest emitter in the world, the United States, Europe, and India. Right? Those four players are crucial for getting us going. And without all four of them, or at least the first three, Uh, It just doesn't seem likely to me that we can make a lot of progress uh, on this issue. And so trying to pin it on any one country is too much.
2: So maybe
0: last thing then, come back around to your core argument about uh, kind of how all of this relates to hegemony. And so you you mentioned like 2015, 2016 as being kind of a turning point within the energy sector. Um, At the same time, this is also a time when we've seen a lot of questioning of that core oil for security bargain between the United States and and the Gulf oil producers. Um, So how do you read this now in terms of, uh, the the connections between the military political subsystem and the energy subsystem. How do you read all this discussion of the U.S. withdrawing from the Gulf and the regional powers, you know, going out there looking for whatever it is they're looking for? How does that fit within your broader argument?
1: It's a great question, Mark. And, uh, and it's exactly where my, my work is going. Uh, and so, you know, just to finish the thought about, I want to explain the, the title of the book. Oh, we, right. we should have done that earlier. It was just that, you know, The the title comes from rethinking of the idea of U.S. hegemony, right? Instead of thinking of it as kind of an all or nothing proposition, which is how IR theorists have kind of traditionally thought about it. You know, we do better to think about hegemony as non-monolithic, where a state can be really powerful in some ways, militarily, for instance, uh, but not so powerful in other ways, economically or about environmental problems or what have you. Um, And the way to break that down, as I describe in the book, is is much more about subsystems. Um, But one of those subsystems, as you say, is these kind of oil for security uh, arrangements that the U.S. has had for now, you know, going on 70 years with with petrostates in the Persian Gulf. And it is possible that the clean energy transition, um, to the extent that that, uh, the world gets serious about getting off of oil, it undermines the basic logic of oil for security, right? You take away the oil, well then the protectors are no longer necessarily gonna be so interested in providing that security. Uh, And so one can imagine, uh, you know, the the push that we're seeing now, especially among uh, these IR theorists who call themselves restrainters, who wanna say, okay, we're gonna pull back and, and not provide security. My concern about that is that, you know, these these deals have had an effect, uh, or at least they seem to have had an effect in terms of uh, in 2017, when Saudi Arabia was thinking about invading Qatar, uh, one of the reasons they didn't do it was that Rex Tillerson and um, Mattis got on the phone with the Saudis and said, look, we have a base in Qatar. Do not go in to Qatar. Do not invade. And they were able to sort of, you know, restrain um, what would have been an interstate conflict. And so you take those those deals away, we might expect to see uh, at least initially a higher rate of interstate conflict within the Persian Gulf. I think that could be really destabilizing uh, and it could have consequences for nuclear proliferation as some of these states say, well, if I don't have a US security guarantee, I might wanna have a bomb to make sure that I protect myself. Uh, and that's that's something we should be thinking hard about what that really means.
0: Well, Jeff, we've been speaking with uh, Jeff Colgan of Brown University about partial hegemony, oil politics, and international order. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for having me on. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's article segment. We're joined by Safa Asaidi. She's a pre-doctoral fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, a PhD candidate at Northwestern University, author of the new article, The Arab Spring, Why Do the Uprisings Miss the Monarchies? Safa, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So tell us about this article and um, what you think the major contribution is.
3: Um so this article is trying to explain as the title says why did the Arab uprisings miss the monarchies as as you know um, the uprisings um, spread from Tunisia to other Arab countries, and they happen to be republics. And I'm trying here to answer the question: Why did these uprisings miss miss the monarchies? And I'm trying to introduce a new variable that have not been uh, that has not been discussed in, in the literature, which is civil liberties. It's more of an explore, um, more of an exploration of that variable, and hoping to add to the literature in in that regards.
0: So, when you say that the uprisings didn't spread to the monarchies, um, what does that mean? Why are Jordan and Morocco, for example, not part of your definition of uprisings? Like, let's be.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, when the Arab when the Arab Spring um, uh, started, definitely protests spread across all Arab countries, but. In, in some countries, these protests escalated to uprisings. And I, I built on the literature what by, by uprisings we mean persistent protests that are very large, that occurred in multiple cities and continued for a prolonged period of time. So of course, when the Arab uprisings happened, there were protests in parts of Saudi Arabia and parts of Oman and also in parts of Morocco and Jordan, but they did not escalate to the level of the uprisings. And that is what differentiates uprisings from non-uprisings countries.
0: So then you want to explain this in terms of civil liberties um, is the, the the new variable you're introducing? Um, maybe we could start by you explaining why you think you need a new um, this new variable. Um, what what was missing from the the previous literature?
3: And first and foremost, the the current literature has contributed significantly to our understanding of why the, of the pattern with which the uprisings spread they considered oil they um, they rich they considered the income levels they considered economic grievances they considered repression levels um these um, variables, while they have significantly added to our understanding of, of the Arab uprisings, they leave some anomalies unexplained. Ex- for example, if if income level or economic grievances all that matter, why, for example, um, these uprisings didn't occur in Jordan and, and Morocco, which are like poor nations in comparison with the Gulf monarchies. So I felt the need that there, there, there must be Another piece of the puzzle that's yet to be addressed and civil liberties presented a pattern that I thought warranted some consideration and and research.
0: So explain what you mean then by civil liberties and how did you go about uh, measuring this?
3: Uh, So civil liberties, I built on the data set as provided by varieties of democracy, and and they just refer to uh, freedom of expression, assembly, mobility, property rights, and ownership and and mobility, and the way that it's measured um, basically uh, they they go to the local experts in these countries and and they ask them over an extended period of time how have these liberties changed um is for example egypt today freer than last year and so on and so forth so i don't i don't come up with the variable or define it myself i definitely build on existing data in that sense so then
0: tell us exactly how you're using the civil liberties variable because it's not just a static thing that's what's so interesting about the article um, so explain you know, how you are interpreting this as a driver of uprisings?
3: Absolutely. So I look at the trends in civil liberties over time. And what I I notice is that civil liberties have been gradually increasing in, in the monarchies, with the exception for Bahrain, and decreasing gradually in the republics, with the exception of Algeria. And these countries are also the countries that happen to have the uprisings. And that takes me to the mechanisms, which I say that it is... And in increasing civil liberties in the monarchies gave citizens the sense that you, you know civil liberties are not great, but they but they think continue to be better. So in in that regard, I, I build my claim is that that it's not the current like status of of conditions that matter, but also the the trajectory that's very important. Because if a citizen has faith that the regime continues to be better over time, then they have faith, you know, basically to be patient and wait until things improve. However, if you give up that faith in in the regime and you feel like they have no legitimacy whatsoever, you have nothing to lose and you take to the streets.
0: And then that's also mixed, um, as you put it uh, in the article, with kind of your expectations about uh, the future.
3: Absolutely. And in the in there, I, I built on um, uh, the... The, the concept of relative deprivation um, by Robert Gurr, that, um, but I kind of deviate slightly by saying that um, it's not relative to what citizens should have, but the, what they once had. So I introduce the temporal aspect in, in the equation. And in, that, in, in saying that, I'm not in any way implying that monarchies are freer than the republics. In absolute terms, they're absolutely not. But they tend to be freer over time while republics get more repressive over time.
0: Then you also make the point that citizens of the monarchies um, might feel like they have more to lose.
3: Absolutely. Um, yes, definitely. Because if you think that your status quo, yes, in absolute terms, it's not good, but somehow it's getting better, then you're, uh, you have something to lose um, that doesn't justify taking to the streets and exposing yourself to these um, unbelievable risks of repression.
0: So in your article, you, you draw this large um, kind of region-wide comparison, but you also look at particular cases and countries to illustrate how this works. So choose a choose one of the countries you, that you, like Egypt, for example, or one of the others that you think really demonstrates the mechanisms uh, that, that you have in mind.
3: Yeah, so in, in the qualitative part of my analysis, I definitely dive into specific countries and I build on protesters uh, testimonies of how they felt about the regimes. And for example, one of, of the countries that for me uh, struck me, and of course, this analysis is limited before two thousand and fifteen, which is in the case of Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia over time uh, has been undergoing a lot of reforms that started much earlier than um, MBS, and these reforms have entailed um, literally expanding of, of, of liberties. And what I mean by that is women participation in, in, in the workforce, um, uh, better conditions for, for Shia in the eastern province, especially under King Abdullah. So if you look at a specific leadership and specific policies, you really see the trend is improving, although very slow. And that also applies to other countries like Morocco and, and, and Jordan, also other Gulf monarchies. So yeah.
0: But then of course the big outlier is Bahrain. So why is Bahrain different?
3: Um, Bahrain as is, is a monarchy is relatively rich in comparison with uh, Jordan and, and and Morocco and also relatively definitely richer than other Arab republics. Yet Bahrain had an uprisings and my argument it had to do with civil liberties. Um, unlike other um, Gulf monarchies, Bahrain had the the civil liberties over time have plummeted and we only see repression. and I built on testimonies of, of protesters in Bahrain who over time, they felt that their liberties are being stripped away and they gradually they're giving up faith in in keeping the system um, as a whole.
0: Now, you don't really go into this in the article since you're explaining what happened in the past, but it's interesting to think how this applies to the future. If we see countries in the region becoming more repressive after the uprisings, does that suggest that uh, they're basically sowing the seeds of, of future uprisings?
3: Uh, yeah, my answer here will be speculative, but I would say yes. Um, like, like unlike you know Saudi Arabia in the last few decades, like I said, there were marginal improvements in in the civil liberties realm. But since twenty fifteen, we see a complete change, and I wouldn't be surprised if that basically sows the seeds for for uh, basically a movement or uh, or discontent, especially if we go beyond um, the economic factors. Uh, but, but a lot of it remains to be seen, so we'll'll we'll wait and see.
0: Now, I want to go back to this um, the concept of civil liberties. Now you said you were you, you, you just drew on the the VDEM, um uh, data set, but you also do talk about different aspects of that, freedom of speech, human rights. Um, which of these do you think is most important, or does it all kind of come together for you into like a single you know way of expe- the citizen experiences the state?
3: Um, In my article, I definitely bundled them all under one umbrella. And I also showed that they're very interconnected. You really cannot separate freedom of expression from freedom from mobility. They all they're multifaceted, but it's a general sense. If you if you don't have property rights, then uh, you are more likely your economic conditions to suffer. But also that means your economic uh, education opportunities are limited. So you really cannot separate. But I, I see the value and the nuance and in, in seeing them separately. But definitely in the article, I, I see them as 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 one index.
0: Mm-hmm. And you also kind of connect this to what kinds of expectations citizens would have of the state or of the regime.
3: Yes, absolutely. For me, the future, the, the future element is important because I say not only their not only their, their their conditions are not as bad as in other countries, but they continue to be better. So it is a broad perspective that takes seriously the past as well as the future and 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 shows the citizens to be um introspective but forward-looking in in that regard
0: but it's not necessarily just about elections either which is interesting
3: yes it's i don't dive into elections and specific mechanisms um but definitely not only about elections
0: so in a sense, um, you know, when you then go back to your original question of, um, you know, why doesn't why don't they spread to the monarchies? It's interesting that that you know the focus there is on the citizens and less on the repressive power of the regimes or their oil wealth or those sorts of things. And so, how, how do you address that in terms of a competing explanation?
3: Um, So, yes, you're right, and I definitely focus on the citizen, but it's an explanation that's rooted in the regime-citizen relationship, so they're not entirely disconnected, and for me, it's very, as somebody who, like, you know, witnessed that time, Um, when I I think of protests, I think about the citizens, I think about how they feel about these regimes. I think about how they summarize their experiences and the experiences of their parents and how they foresee the experiences of their children. So while I I definitely acknowledge the importance of looking at regime factors and I do not dismiss their importance whatsoever, I also think there is value in looking at the the calculus of the citizen on on the ground and, and temporally, not just spatially.
0: And so it's interesting to go back and recapture the, the, the ideas of the protesters at the time and what motivated them.
3: Yes, absolutely. And, and I, do, I do cite um, the protesters. Uh, for example, in Libya, uh, somebody would say, you know, I have a good job. I even was working abroad, but I came back to protest because I, don't, I, I, feel, I feel like my sense of freedom and dignity is stripped away. So to me, capturing that was, was important, relying on the testimonies of protesters themselves.
0: Well, it's really interesting. Um, uh, Safa, uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, congratulations on the article.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Basil Salouk of the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies um, and a prolific author about Lebanon in particular. Basil, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Mark.
0: So it's great to have you here. I wanted to kind of check in with you about where Lebanese politics are today. It seems like everything is kind of stuck since uh, the country's been hit by crisis after crisis. Politically, nothing really seems to be going anywhere. You've been studying Lebanon for a very long time. What is your take on the Lebanese political system right now?
2: And what are the possibilities? Well... I mean, we're still living in many ways the after effects of the financial and the economic collapse uh, after the 2019 protests. And the, as you know very well, the Lebanese political system is, is prone to crises uh, because of the kind of consociational and democracy that we have in Lebanon. But what we've witnessed in the past two years really is a kind of an economic and financial meltdown. Uh, but one which the elite has decided to respond to in a manner that uh, protects their own interests, their own material interests, and that explains the kind of paralysis that we've seen in the in the, in the past two years, uh, and the kind of uh, political paralysis that we that we've seen. It also explains the kind of uh, economic choices that the uh, that the state uh, and the central bank the bank have made uh, it's also connected directly to the fact that 2 years after the collapse and 2 years after the kind of crisis that the world bank has considered to be one of the worst in history we still don't have a, a roadmap for how to get out uh, of uh, of the economic and financial collapse? We don't have a, we haven't started uh, movement through what, you know, in the 1990s they used to call the valley of tears, which is the value you have to pass through as you engage in structural reforms. Now, in the meantime, of course, uh, people's uh, economic conditions have deteriorated. Massively, uh, people have found their savings and uh, and their money uh, evaporating as a result of uh, three digit inflation. And of course, uh, m- people's money in the banks are uh, people's money are locked in the in the banks, and the central bank has been. Uh, engineering all kinds of different policies uh, to to, uh, give access to people's credit in a very limited way.
0: So we've been uh, speaking in earlier uh, episodes of the podcast about your academic work on on consociationalism and kind of rethinking the way that it kind of locks in the system where these political party elites are almost cooperating with each other to sustain the status quo rather than competing with each other like you would see in a typical democracy. So tell us a little bit about your thinking about what we've learned about this consociational
2: system through this crisis. So my, my revisionist account of consociationalism in Lebanon is that I've I've sort of made this argument that when you compare Lebanon to the classical consociational cases, you discover that there is really a very big difference in the sequence between uh, the rise of a certain kind of politics of accommodation and the adoption of what Lephardt later calls consociationalism that comes after a very long and protracted process of state formation in the classical European cases compared to the sequence we see in Lebanon whereby the uh, political elite at the moment of uh, the creation of Lebanon and certainly independence in in 43, decides to imagine a society that is divided only along religious lines to justify the, uh, the claim that only the elites of these segments of society can represent them and to use uh, consociationalism, uh, Zain politics, if you like elite politics to take control over the state and the resources of the state. Now, that is the difference between, I've made this argument between the classical consociational cases and what we see in Lebanon. But there is another difference that is becoming also clear between pre-war Lebanon and post-war Lebanon, and that difference talks to some of the things you were describing. The main difference is that in the pre-war period, we did see a kind of a separation between the political elite and the commercial financial bourgeoisie, uh, the mainly Christian commercial financial bourgeoisie that was vested in a project called Lebanon. What we see in the post-war era is this, the, the melting of this difference. And we see the emergence of a, 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 an intensification of the integration between the post-war sectarian political elite, so former militia leaders, a new emerging economic Elite Rafi al Hariri best represented this, and remnants of the pre-war financial uh, elite. And what, what you really see in the post-war era is the uh, is the emergence of what I've called, borrowing loosely from Antonio Gramsci, the integral state, whereby you the political, economic, financial elite operate in, in concert to uh, serve uh, their own material interests and to use the fiscal and monetary policies of the state to create the kind of post-war order that collapsed after October 2019. That intensification of the integration between the political, economic, and financial elite also explains what happens after October 2019. That is why they decided uh, to destroy society uh, in order to protect their own material interest. So there is there's so so there is a lot that we can learn from Lebanon about variations in consociational systems. But also we can learn a lot about how the technologies of consociationalism allow the political elite, in concert with the economic financial elite, to make the kind of choices uh, after October 2009, that as I said, Mm -hmm. end up destroying society, probably destroying three generations in order to protect their own uh, material interests.
0: So supposedly uh, there's going to be parliamentary elections uh, sometime soon, it doesn't sound like uh, you're very optimistic that such elections could have a significant effect on this paralysis or on this party cartel.
2: So this is a, this is a debatable uh, uh, issue in the sense that uh, there is a mood, a new mood in the country, The what we call uh, among the, the Saura activists those who emerged after October 2019 that you know this is a moment uh, where you can push for uh, uh, elections and try to win as many seats as you can in parliament and hopefully by doing that you can create new dynamics you can you can create a new block in parliament that can play some kind of a role checking the Uh, the powers of the post-war political elite. Now, the problem with that is that the Thaura alternative is not homogeneous or unified in the sense that it is divided at least into two parts. One part represents the real spirit of the October 2019 protests, those who are completely against the confessional system, those who demand complete change away from the, the, the kind of sectarian power sharing we have, we have seen uh, in Lebanon, particularly in its post-war version. These people want to go straight to what they call or it's kind of a civic state as an, as an antidote to the corruption, the lack of accountability, uh, the violence of the sectarian system. But there is another part of those who claim that they are also representatives of the Thawra. And the, the 2019 protest, who actually do not want to uh, let go of the consociational sectarian system. Uh, they come primarily from Christian backgrounds who, who are against the existing uh, political parties, sectarian parties, but they don't want to uh, 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 sort of torpedo the existing political system. They want to enter parliament and, and contest it in the name of their own often sectarian constituencies so opposition from within the system and this is this is this is dangerous in the sense that uh, this has divided the the opposition and given the kind of electoral law we have in lebanon and the kind of sectarian demography and geography you have in lebanon it might allow the established sectarian parties to try as much as, much as possible to contain uh, the, uh, the ability of the Saura uh, opposition or candidates to break into uh, parliament in big numbers.
0: Does uh, Saad Hariri's withdrawal from political life open up any possibilities for change emerging out of the Sunni community?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was sort of a, that's a game changer in the sense that the future movement, according to all surveys, uh, remains, uh, remain the biggest Sunni uh, uh, ele- electoral power. And now the question is, well, who is going to uh, contest the elections in the name of what Hariri represented and the future movement. There's talk about the Senora because he's not a member of the future movement. And what this has done also, uh, given the nature of the Lebanese electoral law, is is it has mixed up uh, uh, electoral alliances in the different electoral, uh, uh, electoral districts. So there is a lot of debating now as to where will these votes that were traditionally... Uh, uh, earmarked for the future movement and for Saad al-Hariri in the Sunni community, who will they vote for? And of course, there are, uh, uh, whether it is Sunni uh, uh, representatives who want to contest the elections uh, or others who uh, who want to try and grab these votes to, uh, to their own candidates, whether they will go to uh, if you like traditional Sunni political candidates, or they might go in some districts to Tawra candidates, opposition candidates. That is the, that will be really the big uh, game changer. Uh, so so that's that's what the Hariri's in a sense bombshell has done to the uh, to the uh, preparations for the elections.
0: And maybe one last question is that you've also written a lot over the years about the role of external powers and the penetrated nature of the Lebanese state. Um, how do you, how do you assess what the international community, what uh, regional powers, um, what are they doing right now in the face of this uh,
2: kind of political crisis? So the the main role of the international community, and of course, in, in the case of Lebanon, there is a contest among the external actors again over lebanon but the main the main role in uh, in lebanon vis-a-vis the elections is that there is a, a very strong position by the western international community uh, pushing for elections to be held on time and the political elite in lebanon the sectarian elite is not really happy, very happy with this because they are afraid of parliamentary elections, they are afraid that elections will lead to them losing certain, certain seats. The other part of the, uh, the, the sort of overlap between the domestic and the external in Lebanon has to do with geopolitics. That is, how will any kind of movement in the uh, nuclear arms negotiations between the US and Iran uh, affect the situation in mm-hmm. Lebanon and of course the Lebanese obsess about these things and they assume always that 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 everything domestic is actually organically connected to what's hap- what happens geopolitically and so on but there's a you know there's a lot of talk as to what would any kind of movement in the U.S. Iranian negotiations uh, uh, translate in, in Lebanon and it's you know the, and it goes from, uh, from one side that says, well, a, a U.S.-Iranian deal uh, will help the situation in Lebanon. It might actually uh, uh, give uh, greater uh, voice for the Iranians uh, in Lebanon all the way to the other side of the argument that, that says, well, uh, uh, changes in the geopolitical arena might empower uh, and the, uh, Lebanon's need for help from the Western community and from the IMF and the World Bank might empower external actors to push for a different scenario and the election of a, a candidate like Kuat Shab in the 1950s. There's, they mentioned the name of Joseph Aoun the commander of the Lebanese army, who could actually implement a kind of a reformist agenda that would try to rebuild the state and rebuild society the way for Achaab tried to do after 1958. So so again, the Lebanese after a hiatus that had something to do with the war over Syria after Mm -hmm. 2011, again, all eyes in Lebanon are on what's happening outside. A part of the story, which is very important, is what's happening in, in the negotiations over the maritime borders, because there also there is a feeling that if you can strike a deal over the maritime borders, then and the U.S. is, is immensely involved in this, then that will also translate into a kind of a, 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 a release from pressure for the political elite in Lebanon.
0: Well, it's all really interesting. Uh, Basil, thank you so much for joining us, taking the time to talk with us. Mark, always a pleasure to talk to you.